the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. You'll never guess, but Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blinn, producing. I know. I'm surprised, too. Jeremy Treat will be my guest today. He is the author of Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. He begins by defining what is the kingdom of God and what does this mean uh, for us. So I'm looking forward to that conversation coming up at the bottom of the four o'clock hour. So uh, heads up for that. First, we'll take a look at some of the headlines uh, for the day. The Democrats uh, have blinked on pursuing uh, Trump impeachment, at least for now. It's not for all time. It's still a possibility. And there are members who disagree with leadership, suggesting that now is, in fact, the time. And they will, as individuals, pursue the very same. Well, leaders of the House Democrats backed off the idea of immediately launching impeachment proceedings against the president in an urgent conference call on Monday evening. With a growing rift among the party's rank-and-file members, presidential contenders and committee chairs. And I think in all fairness, you're talking about a relatively small portion of the party uh, that has said impeachment at all costs. And of course, everyone's eyeing 2020. And is that the cost that they're willing to pay? And then you have the vast majority who believe that uh, 2020 is the place to remove the president from his his uh, position. Uh, so the leadership has won out and they are going to continue probing, but not pursuing um, impeachment immediately. Well, uh, two seniors uh, sources on the private conference call uh, that even House Financial Services Committee Chairman uh, Maxine uh, Waters, uh, an anti-Trump firebrand, told fellow Democrats that while she personally favored going forward with impeachment proceedings, she was not pushing for other members to join her. So she will continue. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her leadership team were clear there were no immediate plans to move forward with impeachment. Uh, Pelosi told fellow Democrats she favors more investigations of Trump to save our democracy, in quotes. Now, the uh, the political advantage is that you continue to undermine the reputation of the sitting president with a view to 2020 and the opportunity to unseat him. And that's Nancy Pelosi's strategy at this point. Meanwhile, if Nancy Pelosi favors more investigations of the president, she won't be disappointed. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler uh, on Monday subpoenaed former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify publicly on the 21st of May, followed uh, following last week's release of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on the Russia investigation. Nadler described McGahn, who stepped down as White House counsel in uh, October of 2018, as a critical witness to many of the alleged instances of obstruction of justice and other misconduct described in the special counsel's report. Now, I think I mentioned the day the, the report was released that McGahn and others actually saved the president from himself when he ordered them to do X and they refused. Um, he later relented, but if they had gone forward, then perhaps there would have been obstruction charges in place for something he actually did rather than what he uh, attempted to do or wanted to do. Uh, anyway, he was set for uh, has set a May 7th deadline for him to provide documents related to the Mueller investigation. And again, that's the chairman of the committee referring to uh, a former uh, White House counsel, Don McCann. 
Meanwhile, lawyers for the president have sued to block a subpoena issued by members of Congress that sought the business magnate's financial records. More on that uh, in a bit. The purported leader of an Islamic extremist group blamed for the Easter attack in Sri Lanka that killed over 300 people, injured more than 500, began posting videos online three years ago calling for non-Muslims to be eliminated. Faith leaders said on Tuesday, much remained unclear about how a little-known group called National um, Tofik Jamath carried out six large near-simultaneous suicide bombings striking churches and hotels. However, warnings about the growing radicalism in the island nation off the coast of India date back to at least 2007, while Muslim leaders say their repeated warnings were unheeded. That was uh, warnings about the group and its leaders. Uh, drew no visible reaction from officials responsible for public security. Well, since then, ISIS has claimed responsibility, saying that they worked closely with those suicide bombers who were responsible for the incident. Bernie Sanders says Boston Marathon bombers, uh, the Boston Marathon bomber, rather, should be granted the uh, right to vote while in prison. Well, the 2020 presidential candidate on Monday defended his stance for granting voting rights to criminals in prison, including the Boston Marathon bomber and convicted sexual assaulters during a CNN town hall on Monday night. A student asked Sanders if his position would support enfranchising people like Boston Marathon bomber Shokart Tsarnaev, who... um, Uh, She noted is a convicted terrorist and murderer, as well as those convicted of sexual assault whose votes could have a direct impact on women's issues. Well, the senator first responded by saying he wanted a vibrant democracy with higher voter turnout and blasted cowardly Republican governors who he said were trying to suppress the vote. The Vermont senator then argued that the Constitution says everybody can vote and that some people in jail can vote. Uh, saying some people, although he did say quite clearly that, yes, he believes Sarnayev should be granted the vote. Others on the panel, uh, Buttigieg uh, being the most prominent, saying, no, he did not agree. Um, others saying, well, we should have that conversation, which is sort of a scapegoat way of not addressing the issue at all. Meanwhile, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will soon visit Russia to meet with President Vladimir Putin. Notice me, notice me, I'm over here, notice me, is what that's probably about. The North state-run Korean Central News Agency confirmed on Tuesday without releasing a set date or location for that meeting. The meeting may give Kim more leeway in future negotiations with President Trump after their February summit in Vietnam broke down due to a disagreement agreement over ridding North Korea of its nuclear arsenal. It should not have come as a surprise. It was uh, made quite clear throughout uh, the uh, press conferences and statements made before, during, and after the previous uh, meetings with Kim Jong-un. So again, rather uh, not shocking, rather uh, abrupt, but not uh, surprising. The Kremlin announced last week that North Korea's supreme leader will visit Russia in the second half of April, or in the second half, but didn't elaborate further. And an old tweet is coming back to haunt Ilhan Omar. The representative uh, resurfaced tweet from the uh, now representative saw the Minnesota Democrat claim U.S. forces killed thousands of Somalis during the 1993 Black Hawk Down mission, despite multiple analysts concluding the number was much smaller. In the October 2017 uh, tweet discovered by journalist John Rosamondo, Omar was responding to a a Twitter user who'd highlighted that more than a dozen U.S. soldiers were killed and another 73 wounded in the battle for Mogadishu, saying it was the worst terrorist attack in Somalia history. Omar, a Somali refugee who was then a Minnesota state representative, refuted the tweet, insisting that thousands of Somalis were killed by American forces 
The number of Somali casualties in the Battle of Mogadishu is widely disputed. And by the way, uh, her party is uh, in her state is already championing others to attempt to unseat her. According to The Hill, Senator Kamala Harris said Monday that the House should take steps toward impeaching the president, which which follows an identical recommendation from Senator Elizabeth Warren. But the Associated Press adds House Speaker Nancy Pelosi urged the divided Democrats to focus on fact finding rather than the prospect of any impeachment proceeding. So whether or not that will have an impact on the senator, whether that's Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, remains to be seen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up at the bottom of this hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Treat. Dr. Treat is the author of Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, trustees for the Social Security and Medicare programs on Monday announced that the long-term deficit facing the program's was a staggering $59 trillion as the retirement age population expands relative to the working age population in the coming decades and the cost of health care explodes. The two programs will eat up a growing amount of government resources unless there are significant changes. Keep in mind, we've got a debt and deficit to uh, manage as well. The estimates could be optimistic because, according to the trustees, the Medicare projections shown Uh, could be substantially understated as a result of other potentially unsustainable elements of current law, end quote. Mayor de Blasio marked Earth Day yesterday by outlining uh, measures to make New York greener, including dramatically cutting the carbon footprint of the city's signature building, the skyscraper. We're going to ban the classic glass and steel skyscraper, he said, which is incredibly inefficient. He was speaking to MSNBC Uh, The New York version of the Green New Deal currently being pushed by freshman Democratic members of Congress would make buildings of more than 25,000 square feet, 2,300 square meters, cut their emissions by 40 percent by 2030 compared with uh, 2005 levels. The Democratic mayor said that those who fail to meet the new environmental standards could face fines of more than a million dollars in the case of larger buildings. And a New York City uh, judge has dismissed a complaint from parents who objected to the city's emergency vaccine order meant to immediately curb a dangerous measles epidemic threatening the city's vulnerable. NBC News reported that as of Sunday, Brooklyn doctors have counted an astounding 626 cases of measles, more than the number of cases reported in the entire year in 2014 when the city suffered a measles outbreak. And in a watershed moment for LGBT Uh, Rights advocates, the Supreme Court agreed to take up three cases involving LGBT individuals who claim they were fired from their jobs because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. The court will decide whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination by employers based on sex, also prohibits discrimination based uh, based rather on sexual orientation and gender identity of workers. The cases are the first to test the bent of the new law, conservative-leaning uh, court on LGBT issues. Um, we're going to talk more about this. In fact, we had uh, a conversation with ADF. We were working on all day. That's probably going to have to happen tomorrow. One of the cases involves a funeral uh, funeral director uh, who had an employee who was, I believe, male, um, who worked in the front of the office, who began presenting as female. And the employer uh, felt that that was inappropriate for the front of the office. And that's one of the cases that they're going to be taking up. We'll talk more about that Uh, with ADF tomorrow, Alliance Defending Freedom. 
And Starbucks' efforts to address opioid use and improperly disposed needles in its restrooms are expanding. Starbucks stores in at least 25 U.S. markets have installed needle disposal boxes in bathrooms in recent months. By this summer, the chain aims to have installed sharp boxes in bathrooms in all regions where such actions have been deemed necessary. The company faced at least one government investigation related to the issue in 2018 after two employees in a Eugene location were struck with uh, hypodermic needles within a month of each other. And on this day in 2005, YouTube uploaded its first clip, Me at the Zoo. Well, not me, but, you know, somebody at the zoo, which shows YouTube co-founder Jawad Karim. He's standing in front of an elephant enclosure at the San Diego Zoo. Wasn't a fascinating video, but there were others more interesting to follow. And on this day in 1995, iconic sportscaster Howard Cosell dies in New York at age 77. And on this day in 1971, hundreds of Vietnam War veterans opposed to the conflict protest by tossing their medals and ribbons over a wire fence in front of the U.S. Capitol. Some of us remember that uh, rather vividly. Well, leaders of the House Democrats uh, backed off the idea of immediately launching impeachment proceedings against the president in an urgent conference call on Monday evening. With a growing rift among the party's rank and file members, presidential contenders and committee chairs on the contentious issue. Fox News uh, was told by two senior sources on a private conference call that even House Financial Services Committee Chair Maxine Waters, the anti-Trump Firebrand told fellow Democrats while she personally favored going forward, she wasn't going to push for other members to join her. House Speaker Pelosi and her leadership team were clear there were no uh, immediate plans to move forward with impeachment. Uh, Well-placed sources said it was a spirited 87-minute call involving more than 170 Democrat members, including House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff and House Oversight Committee Chair Elijah Cummings. We have to save our democracy, Pelosi said, according to the the sources. Uh, This isn't about Democrats or Republicans. It's about saving our democracy. If it was uh, what we need to do to honor our responsibility to the Constitution, if that's the place the facts take us, that's the place we have to go. I I have to pause for just a moment because it's so interesting to me in politics, the wax and waning of uh, the importance of the Constitution and uh, what's most important and what your constitutional responsibilities are. It's... uh, It's how politicians get their reputation for the most part. Anyway, Pelosi added, we don't have to go to articles of impeachment to obtain the facts, the presentation of facts. Well, Waters' hesitation and Pelosi's uh, remarks signal clearly that for the time being, any impeachment effort would struggle to gain steam. Just last week, uh, Waters uh, took a uh, far more aggressive tone, charging that Congress' failure to impeach is complacency in the face of the erosion of our democracy and constitutional norms. It's actually a constitutional republic, but that's neither here nor there these days because apparently it doesn't matter in um, public discourse. Waters also has called Attorney General Bill Barr a lackey, saying he was not being respectful to Congress. Barr held a news conference presenting special counsel Robert Mueller's conclusions and has referred bluntly to the FBI surveillance of the Trump campaign as spying, rankling Democrats, even as he uh, said The important issue was whether the spying was properly predicated. But on the call on Monday night, Waters took a more, we're talking, of course, about Maxine Waters, a more muted tone and said she was simply saying what she personally thought, not demanding impeachment proceedings. Congress is currently on a two-week recess and representatives are scattered across the country. The brewing fractures among Democrats were evident on Sunday talk show circuit uh, as uh, uh, Representative Schiff 
told Fox News Sunday that the impeachment question presented a very difficult decision that would take the next couple of weeks to determine. Um, I'm not there yet, he said, but I can foresee that possibility coming. Elijah Cummings said on CBS News Face the Nation, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer uh, said Democrats would be wise to instead focus on uh, the upcoming presidential election. Obstruction of justice, if proven, would be impeachable. New York Representative Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, said on NBC News Meet the Press, adding his committee would see where the facts lead us. Well, Nadler issued a subpoena on Monday for documents and testimony from former White House counsel Donald McCann, uh, who resisted Trump's calls to fire Mueller, according to special counsel findings. And there are about 10 or 11 specific uh, incidences cited in the Mueller report that the uh, Democrats, particularly in the House, are looking to investigate further as evidence of uh, an attempt uh, to uh, hamper the investigation, obstruct the investigation. Well, I won't even go into that because I've already mentioned it. Uh, but uh, the the president, lawyers, I should say, for the president on Monday sued a block of uh, House members, a subpoena issued by members of Congress uh, that sought to... Uh, seek his um, business financial records. The complaint named Representative Elijah Cummings, the Democratic chairman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, Peter Kenney, the chief investigative counsel of the House Committee, as its plaintiffs. We will not allow congressional presidential harassment to go unanswered. Jay Sekulow, counsel for the president, is quoted as saying, earlier this month, Cummings said the uh, committee would subpoena accounting firm Mazur USA LLC for Trump's financial information. Cummings is seeking annual statements, periodic financial reports, independent to auditors reports from Mazur's, as well as records of communications with uh, Donald Trump, the civilian, and Donald Trump, now the president. In seeking the records, uh, the a uh, representative has cited the February testimony from former Trump attorney Michael Cohen, who claimed the president inflated or deflated the value of his assets when it would benefit him. Democrats sent a letter to Mazars in March requesting information about how Trump's financial statements were prepared. But the firm said it could not voluntarily turn over documents unless subpoenaed. In the suit on Monday, the president's lawyers asked the court to declare the subpoena invalid and unenforceable. It also asks for a a permanent injunction quashing Chairman Cummings' subpoena. The back and forth continues. We'll try to keep you updated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Jeremy Treat. He's the author of Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. We'll start at the beginning. What is the kingdom of God and what difference does it make to me personally and to the body of Christ in general? Dr. Jeremy Treat, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest makes the point that the key to a successful and fulfilling life is finding out what matters most and then building your whole life around it. So what does matter most? Well, in his book, Seek First, pastor and author Jeremy Treat is a, offers a vision of following Jesus that shapes and enhances all of life, offering an eternal perspective, a lasting purpose, and an unshakable identity. It is the only thing worth building your life around. Well, Dr. Jeremy Treat is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality Church in L.A., um, in uh, California and adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. He is the award-winning author of The Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. He joins us today to talk about his uh, book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Yeah, it's an honor to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, the kingdom of God is a phrase that we so often use, and certainly Jesus did as well. But I wonder how much we uh, understand uh, what it means. You opened the book with the uh, quote that I offered a moment ago. You said the key to life is finding out what matters most and building your life around it. In an age of distraction, however, focusing on what matters most feels impossible. But if we look at the words of Jesus, it's, well, it's not only possible, but it's, uh, uh, it's something that he's calling us to. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I remember the first time I heard a preacher say, what's the number one thing that Jesus talked about throughout his life? And growing up in the church, I thought I had the answer for that. I thought, you know, it must be either the cross or heaven or love or something like that. And when the preacher said, the number one thing that Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God, um, it totally shook me that all of a sudden I realized that this is the number one thing that he talked about. It's the one thing that he said, seek first about. And, and it really didn't play out in my life and the way that I thought about God and the way that I, I thought about what it means to be a Christian or how to live in this world. And so it really set me on a journey of, of trying to understand, okay, if that's what matters most, then what is the kingdom of God and how do I build my life around it? Mm. You make the point that Jesus gave his followers many commands, but there was only one thing he said to seek first. Again, reminding us of how important this was to Jesus and that he wanted to convey that truth to us. Yeah, I mean, and, and what I love about that is he said that to his disciples in the context of them asking really practical day-to-day questions of what am I going to eat, what am I going to wear, uh, all of humanity, we're not that different, right? We go day to day, we have deep longings, but we also are trying to connect those to practical questions in life. And so I just love that the context for that wasn't a theology classroom. Uh, it's Jesus talking to his disciples, teaching them how to follow him, and giving them this vision of the kingdom of God that shapes our hearts, that shapes our souls, that shapes our schedules and our lives throughout the day. Um, and Jesus called them to that, and then he taught them every day. Yeah, you point out that in, in Jesus saying we should seek first the kingdom, that it doesn't have to compete with our work, our hobbies, relationships, and other important mm-hmm. aspects. These things will be added. So it's not an either or. It's a, a matter of mm-hmm. order and priority. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I think is so powerful about this message of the kingdom is that we often think that things in our life like work or hobbies or even just practical things like eating a meal, uh, we think that those compete with our time with God, that God is only pleased with us, God only cares about when we're reading our Bibles or praying or going to church. But the vision of the kingdom is this idea of Christ's comprehensive reign, that he rules over all, over every aspect of our life. And that means it infuses meaning into the day-to-day activities that we're partaking in, whether that's working or eating a meal or going for a jog that God cares about all of those, and it tears down these categories of sacred and secular that so often we slip into and have a a much less holistic perspective on what it means to live for God. Now, you asked the question, and I think rightly so, because while the phrase is familiar, perhaps understanding what it means might be less so. What is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus referring to? Yeah, so I try to give a short eight-word definition of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And so at the heart of that is that it's about God, and that might uh, 
that might sound obvious that the kingdom of God is centered on God, but I think a lot of the time the way that people use the language of the kingdom is you end up having a kingdom without a king. And some people talk about it as if it's just this utopian society, but it's, it doesn't have God at the center of it. So it, it begins with the reign of God, but then it's a reconciling reign. It's a saving reign. And so God redeems us into his kingdom and and then he, where he reigns, that's over a place. And so the vision of Scripture is that the blessings of God's reign would go to the ends of the earth. And so it's this idea of Christ reigning through his disciples over a new creation. It's not a it's not a vision of kind of taking people away from earth and taking them to heaven. It's heaven and earth coming together where Christ reigns over all. You write that uh, your aim in this book is not only to help you understand the kingdom of God, but to for us to your readers to experience it. And that's uh, precisely what Jesus was calling us to, uh, not only understanding, uh, having an intellectual understanding of what the kingdom is, but to experience that in relationship. Yeah, I mean, the kingdom comes in power. And, and one of the ways to think about the coming of the kingdom is that it's, it's heaven breaking in. It's heaven breaking in on a Sunday morning where we gather as a church right off Sunset Boulevard. It's heaven breaking in in my neighborhood when I'm having conversations with my neighbor. It's heaven breaking in around the dinner table with my family. And so this idea of experiencing the power of the kingdom, the kingdom is not just a future vision of of what the world will be when Christ returns. It's God's reign breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's going to come in power. It's going to be counterintuitive. It's going to be different than the ways of the world, but it's life-changing. Uh, it's, it's being in the presence of the King himself. Well, that sounds so appealing to anyone who is a follower of Christ. And one of the goals of your book is to rearrange, help us to rearrange life around what matters most, because as you point out at the very beginning, the key to life is finding out the answer to that question, what matters most, and then uh, pursuing it with uh, with all that we have, building our life around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think people like the idea of kind of figuring out your priorities in life, but God is not just on the priority list. He's over the whole thing. And so when we recognize that that God is of utmost importance. I mean, to put it simply, we're called to put God first and then build everything around that. It's, it's one thing to be able to say, well, God's most important, and then, and then family, and, then, and kind of go down the line. But it's another thing to actually align your schedule, your money, your energy, your passion around your very priorities. And that's what takes a lot of discipline um, and humility of learning from the Lord through the scriptures, being shaped by the Holy Spirit over time, mm-hmm. to be able to actually align your life around with, around your priorities. And I appreciate your uh, reminding us that the Holy Spirit is at work in us in this effort to uh, to do what Christ calls us to and to live that fullness that he intends for us. Yeah, I mean, the, I really believe that the, the kingdom of God is not ultimately the outcome of human effort, mm-hmm. of our best abilities to make the world a better place. No, it's, we, don't, we don't build the kingdom of God. We receive the kingdom of God. And God draws us into that work, and he does so by empowering us with his spirit to, to take part, to participate in the work that he's doing. And so 
all the power is with him, but through our faith in him and trust in him, he draws us into that work and uses us in it. We're talking this afternoon with Dr. Jeremy Treat. He's the author of uh, the book we're talking about, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, but do need to take this quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Treat. Uh, Dr. Treat is pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality LA, a thriving church in Los Angeles, and an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University. He's the award-winning author of The Crucified King, Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. We're talking today about his latest book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. One of the things that you write about is the fact that we all live according to stories. Uh, but it's not the small stories that shape us most. We all long to see our lives as part of a bigger story. We're all in search of a master narrative, a comprehensive story that answers the big questions like, why are we here? What's wrong? What's the remedy? And how will it end? Talk about the master narrative that helps us to understand the kingdom of God, our place in it, and God's call to us. Yeah, I think that uh, we do all live by these stories, and oftentimes we don't really think about it. We take it for granted. And the story that most of us live by in our culture today is a secular narrative that culminates in individual happiness. And we kind of build our lives around that narrative. But the scriptures give us a really different narrative. It's the story of the kingdom of God. And then when Jesus said his, the first words out of his mouth, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's, that's story language, that's plot language. And so the story of the kingdom goes all the way back to the garden. And God's design from the beginning is that he would rule over all of creation and that his people would rejoice under his rule. All of creation would flourish under his rule. Sin, of course, then, is not only rebellion against God, but it it shatters the goodness of God's creation. And so God's promise of grace then isn't just to save sinners out of creation, but to renew creation. And so you see that through Israel. It ultimately culminates in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, who comes as the king and who is reclaiming creation as his kingdom. And so it's this comprehensive rule that comes through Christ who reigns in a surprising way. The king comes as a servant. The shepherd laid down his life as the lamb. And so our hope, our ultimate future hope, is in the fullness of the kingdom of God, which will be a new creation. But the kingdom has already come in Christ. And so that's the story, this kingdom story that makes sense of our lives today, that helps us understand the hardship that we experience and the hope that we have in Christ. Well, no kingdom exists without a a king. And despite the story that you give from 1934, when the world was... uh, under the threat of a global war, and Hungary was swept into Germany's influence, uh, referring to itself as a kingdom but had no king. R- talk about the unmatchable king that over uh, oversees this kingdom that we're talking about. Yeah, well, this is where if people get confused about, well, what do you mean by the kingdom of God or this or that, I want to constantly come back to Christ the King that he is the the perfect embodiment of the kingdom. And if people say, well, what does it look like in daily life? Or how how do I think of that? I say, 
Think of Jesus forgiving someone's sins. That's the kingdom of God. Think of Jesus healing someone of disease. That's the kingdom of God. Think of Jesus drawing in the outcasts. That's the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, it all centers on Christ the King. That's really what shapes the kingdom. Uh, He's the one that we focus on as the King. And yes, if you lose the focus on the King, then your understanding of the kingdom will go awry. In your chapter on the majestic and the mundane, you uh, remind us of Stephen Hawking, who was devoted to uh, pushing the boundaries of science, even sought uh, nothing less than the theory of everything. And while his theory of everything may not explain, uh, may explain some things, it doesn't explain the why of life, but there is a place uh, where we can turn for those answers. Talk a bit about that chapter and the majestic, and as opposed to the mundane, which is most of what life is like for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, far too often Christians look to Jesus as the Lord of their spiritual life. They, they compartmentalize life where here's my hobbies and here's my work and then here's this religious compartment and Jesus fits into the religious compartment. But when you read the scriptures, it's clear that you can't relegate Jesus to the religious compartment, that he's the king who rules over all. Jesus didn't leave his throne and come down to the cross so that he could be Lord of our spiritual life. He claims all. And so that means it's this vision of Christ's reign over all of life. But that that puts, yeah, as the title of the chapter suggests, it puts majesty in the mundane. It's not just kind of the spiritual highs of an incredible worship service. It's your daily routines. It's the people that you interact with throughout the day. It's pausing uh, before you eat and reminding that all you have is a gift from God. It's, it's, it's seeing God in the everyday rhythms of life and recognizing the ordinary means of grace as the way of God transforms us and uses us in this world. Your book is divided into three sections. The first is Kingdom Perspective, and we've been talking for the most part uh, from that section. Then it moves on to Kingdom Purpose and then Kingdom People. Let's talk about the purpose of the kingdom and our place in it in following uh, Jesus, and that it implies that we're not individuals isolated from others, but we are a part of a larger community. Talk a bit about Kingdom Purpose. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we live in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And so what, what's easy for us to do um, is, is to take these themes of the scriptures, uh, say even like discipleship, and, and to just individualize them. And when we think of praying and reading scripture um, and fasting, maybe meditation or silence, we think of all of those things individually, whereas in the scriptures, um, the, the basis, the default for all of those is much more communal. And God loves us as individuals, but not in an individualistic way. We come before our Father as children who gather together with Him. And so the, the idea of the kingdom reminds us that community is at the heart of all of this. The church really is the community of the King. And so it teaches us to think of uh, whether it's following Jesus as disciples or seeking justice, uh, anything that we do of, of remembering that we are a part of a community, we're a part of a family, where not only is God our Father, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We're told by Jesus himself in the Word that we are 
in this world, but we are not of it. We are kingdom people. And in the last segment of your book, you uh, you write about uh, us, the believers in Jesus, who are kingdom people, sons and daughters, sojourners and exiles, saints and sinners. Who are these kingdom people? Yeah, well, I think this is it's a really timely message for Christians, at least in America today, because there's a long time in America where to be a Christian was the mainstream. That was the norm. And you expected um, other people to agree with you. And our, our society has changed. It's shifted fast. Uh, and what we're experiencing now is, uh, I would say, not an obstacle, but it's an opportunity mm-hmm. for the church to understand its true nature as exiles, as sojourners who are not home yet. And so we need to recognize that our, our citizenship in the kingdom of God is primary and ultimate and shapes our citizenship in whatever city or country we live in. And so we shouldn't expect uh, people who aren't following Jesus as Lord to agree with us on everything. We need to remember that we have a distinct ethic and unique beliefs that are all shaped by following Jesus. Um, we tend to want to when difficulty comes, because we in this country have lived in an exceptional period in which we've had very little conflict or resistance of any kind. We're now reflecting more of what the body of Christ experiences throughout most of the world, at least outside of the Western world. Um, But we are also called to be, as you write, uh, ambassadors of the King. So we are not um, we're not free to retreat, but we are called to be engaged in culture for the glory of God and for the kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's an aspect of the faith that we have to protect, and we have to make sure that we're a distinct community, but we're also sent out as salt and light, and uh, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, uh, seeking reconciliation, seeking the peace of the cities that the Lord has called us to, and we're in a battle, and and it's ultimately Christ who is the victor in that battle. But he calls us into it to witness to him, uh, to, to proclaim the gospel, to stand on the foundation of the word of God. And so we need to recognize the battle that we're in. I mean, I've, I've heard it said that the, the first way to lose a battle is to, real, is to not realize that you're in one. And so we need to know that this is a battle and that the Lord is advancing his kingdom. But at the same time, uh, he does so in surprising ways. We shouldn't have a triumphalistic attitude, but rather recognize that uh, the kingdom was established through the cross. And so the Lord is going to advance his kingdom through suffering and service to a people who recognize the power of sacrifice and who, in reflecting the very Messiah that we follow, lay down our lives for others and and show love to others, even when they don't love us in return. The book is titled Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, and it certainly begins by changing us when we understand it and seek first his kingdom. Dr. Treat, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Really appreciate it. Again, the book is um, published by Zondervan, Seek First. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic. Up next, when we return, we'll take a look at uh, what's going on in the world around us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, yesterday was Earth Day, and we have a lot to be thankful for since the first Earth Day event occurred some 49 years ago. 
The gloomy predictions that haven't come to pass are the reasons I suppose we should be uh, pleased. We should be thankful that the gloom and doom predictions made throughout the past several decades haven't come true. Um, Explosive population growth, food crises, imminent depletion of natural resources have been a staple of Earth Day events since 1970. And the common thread among them is that uh, they've stirred up a lot uh, more emotions than facts. I'm not suggesting everything is hunky-dory, but, um, you know, some of the things that have been said were a little over the top. By the year 2000, if present trends continue, we will be using up crude oil at such a rate that we uh, won't have any more crude oil. That's a quote from ecologist Kenneth Watt. He warned around the time of the first Earth Day event, you'll drive up to the pump and say, fill her up, buddy, and he'll say, I'm so sorry, there isn't any. Watt also warned of global cooling and nitrogen buildup, rendering all of the planet's land unusable. The issue, however, is that present trends don't continue. They can they uh, change dramatically for a number of reasons. Innovation happens, consumer behavior changes, uh, price signals play a huge role in communicating information to energy producers as well as consumers. Higher prices at the pump encourage companies to extract and supply more oil. Expensive gas prices, meanwhile, motivate entrepreneurs to invest in alternatives to oil, whether that's batteries, natural gas vehicles, biofuels. Drivers will examine their consumption options as well, whether carpooling, finding alternative modes of transportation, or over time, pursuing a more fuel-efficient vehicle, which is also an option. Here we are 19 years past the arbitrary deadline. The drivers are pulling up to the pump saying, fill her up, buddy, figuratively speaking, as Watts also didn't foresee self-service stations without any cause for concern. Well, thanks to human ingenuity and the entrepreneurial drive of uh, energy producers, the United States is now the world's largest oil producer, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, and continually breaking records. And while global energy poverty and food insecurity remain a pressing challenge and a serious one, the problem is getting much better, not worse. World Bank and United Nations data show extreme poverty and global hunger has noticeably dropped since 1970. And according to the International Energy Agency, the number of people without access to electricity fell to below 1 billion people for the first time. Clearly, there's work to be done, but signs are pointing in the right direction. In the United States, the common perception is that the country's environmental state is deteriorating. On the contrary, through investment in new technologies and through legislation, environmental trends have improved significantly in the United States. Pollutants known to cause harm to public health and the environment are declining. According to the Environmental Protection Agency's latest air quality trends report, the combined emissions of the six common air pollutants have decreased 73 percent between 1970 and 2017. We should be thankful for economic liberties that provide people with the means to protect the environment. As a country grows economically, it increases the financial ability of its citizens and businesses to care for the environment and reduce pollutants emitted from industrial growth. Countries with greater economic freedoms have cleaner environments and greater environmental sustainability. The Index of Economic Freedom and Yale University's Environmental Performance Index show a highly positive correlation between a country's environmental performance and its economic freedom. Freer economies have access to more products and technologies that make our lives healthier and the environment cleaner. For instance, the availability of simple products such as soap, cleaners, detergents make our homes dramatically cleaner and healthier. The development of sanitation systems and availability of garbage collection greatly reduce many types of disease and reduce toxins in the air and water. Now, what to do with what's collected is a whole other uh, issue, and the runoff from some of these products is a qu- an issue as well. But these products and services may not be what immediately comes to mind on Earth Day. But 
Uh, They've had an enormous impact on cleaning up the planet. And we should be thankful for clearly defined and protected uh, private property rights. One of the first lessons in economics to be learned is that nobody washes a rental car because you don't care for what you don't own. Property rights are a central hallmark in the United States and around the world for improved environmental stewardship, conservation, health of species, wildlife habitats, forests, and other resources. The absence of enforced private property rights in developing countries remains one of the largest barriers to improved prosperity and environmental well-being. Well, catastrophic but unlikely gloom and doom predictions will continue to grab media headlines, but free societies with the protection of property rights are tried and true pathways to a healthier, cleaner world. As uh, we reflect on the progress we've made as a free society, you can celebrate and be thankful. Clearly, there's work to be done, but signs are pointing in the right direction. Well, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio says the Green New Deal is going to ban inefficient steel and glass skyscrapers in New York. If the Big Apple is to become the Green Apple, it's going to have to ban the steel and glass towers that form the signature skyline. That's according to the mayor himself. De Blasio, speaking on MSNBC's uh, Morning Joe, said the city's most iconic structures, the tall skyscrapers seen for miles away, are the biggest source of emissions in New York City. The drastic change and the switch to only renewable energy within five years are necessary for Gotham to embrace the Green New Deal, de Blasio said. We're putting clear, strong mandates to lower emissions, he said, warning property owners um, they'll face massive fines unless buildings are retrofitted. Uh, The first of uh, any major city on earth to say to building owners, you've got to clean up your act, you've got to retrofit, you've got to save energy, he said. If you don't do it by 2030, there will be serious fines as high as $1 million or more for the biggest buildings. People are leaving New York because they can't afford to live there under the current circumstances. I can't imagine what they'll do under the new mandates the the mayor is uh, proposing. He continued, we're going to ban the classic glass and steel skyscraper, which are incredibly inefficient. If someone wants to build one of those things, they can uh, take a whole lot of steps to make it energy efficient. But we're not going to allow what we used to see in the past. De Blasio said private building owners will be required to slash their emissions by 30 percent by 2030. And the same conversation that uh, he was touting renewable energy and reducing emissions, he also defended his use of a gas-guzzling SUV for his daily 11-mile trip from the Gracie Mansion to his Brooklyn gym. Let's make it clear, he said, this is just a part of my life. I come from that neighborhood in Brooklyn. That's my home. I go there on a regular basis to stay connected to where I come from and not be in a bubble that I think for a lot of uh, politicians is a huge problem. So we can carve out an exception because his work and his life are important. Well, the Green New Deal championed by fellow New Yorker Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Washington is a radical measure that called for a massive overhaul of the nation's entire economy and energy use to cut emissions. The deal calls for the U.S. to shift away from fossil fuels such as oil and coal and replace them with renewable sources such as wind and solar power. It also calls for the virtual elimination of greenhouse gas emissions responsible for global warming uh, by 2030. It's estimated to cost about $93 trillion or $600,000 per household, according to studies. Well, Republicans have railed against the proposal, saying it would devastate the economy, trigger massive tax increases. A test vote on the proposal recently failed in the Senate, with no senator voting to begin debate on the legislation. 
Later on Monday, which uh, was Earth Day, de Blasio held a press conference to introduce further his $14 billion plan called the 1NYC 2050, Building a Strong and Fair City. He called it a new comprehensive plan to prepare our city for the future. Every day we wait is a day our planet gets closer to the point of no return. Under his Green New Deal, de Blasio said the city is uh, committing to carbon neutrality by 2050, 100 percent clean electricity, including hydropower. Good luck with that. Of course, he'll be long out of office and it will be left to others to, first of all, develop the capacity and then implement it at significant cost. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, the Washington Post uh, sparked a backlash on Monday for an article that focused on Reaction from the far right after the Sri Lanka attacks on Christians, with at least one analyst saying it's been a common focus for the newspaper after multiple crises, regardless of the cause. So only the far right are to be um, outraged, upset, um, frightened by this kind of attack that happened on a church in Sri Lanka. We'll tell you more about what the Washington Post did and what others are saying in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Washington Post sparked some backlash on Monday. They posted an article that focused on reaction from the far right after the Sri Lanka's uh, attack on uh, Christians, with at least one analyst saying it's been a common focus for the newspaper after multiple crises. An analysis piece published on the uh, church and hotel massacres had likely killed 300 people, wounded more than 500 others, kept the focus on the reactions of the so-called far-right politicians around the world. It noted that France's national rally leader, Marine Le Pen, um, said her thoughts were uh, with persecuted Christians around the world who were targeted for their faith. The piece also highlighted Germany's Alternative for Germany party, uh, who decried the attack against us Christians, an addition Uh, In addition, rather, it included reactions from British provocateur Katie Hopkins, who called out London Mayor Sadiq Khan's response to Sri Lanka compared to his response after the anti-Muslim attack on Christchurch in New Zealand or in Christchurch, as well as former Reagan aide Frank Gaffney, uh, who was best known for his anti-Muslim rhetoric, as the Post reported. Well, the headline analysis, Sri Lanka church bombings stoke far-right anger in the West, triggered a stir on social media. Uh, wrote one, seriously, is this the headline, says uh, one of the um, observers of the the analysis. Another, uh, Christians pounce. Um, this headline is dumb. Well, the Daily Caller, Peter Hassens, uh, pointed out a pattern of a far-right focus in the Washington Post has had after recent events, including the New Zealand terror attack and the recent fire that severely damaged uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The phrase far right is a click magnet for left of center audiences, Hassan uh, tweeted. The Post didn't uh, respond to comments or at least requests for clarification in their coverage. Well, nobody expects ISIS to go quietly into the night. That's not what Islamist terrorist groups do. What this particular group wants now is revenge for their humiliating defeat in Syria and in Iraq. James Carafano points out that the question is, where will they strike to try to save face? America, of course, is on watch to make sure it doesn't happen here. Make no mistake about it, losing its self-proclaimed caliphate was a devastating blow to, to ISIS psychologically as well as militarily. In the Middle East, power is honor. By controlling a vast territory with over 10 million inhabitants, ISIS commanded honor and attracted more followers eager to back this strong horse, in quotes. 
Uh, but that once strong horse is now seen as powerless in the wake of a counteroffensive that eliminated its control of every last village. Nothing could be more degrading. The only way to get back in the game and regain their honor is to demonstrate they can continue to kill innocents, and the bigger the numbers, the better. There's no question that America tops the list of places where ISIS would most likely want to stage horrific attack, but the question is, can they? A recent media accounts of documents uncovered in the Middle East talk of active operational planning for major terrorist attacks in Europe, similar to the 2015 strike in Paris, France, with uh, which left 89 dead. From the reporting, however, it's not clear how much this planning is aspirational, how much reflects actual capacity. That said, it's clear why ISIS uh, might target Europe instead of the United States. For one thing, they've done it before and been successful. The waves of Middle Eastern migration have been exploited to put in place a network of ISIS operatives and sympathizers stretching from the UK to over half the Western uh, of Western Europe. In addition, European police forces are struggling to keep up with the threat. They lack officers with language skills, training in community policing and intelligence-led policing, the tools most useful in rooting out local violent extremist activity. In contrast, here in the United States, it's much harder target. The FBI has made counter-transnational Islamic terrorism job one. Combating terrorism is a principal duty of the Department of Homeland Security as well. State and local law enforcement also continue to dedicate significant resources to the mission. Well, most do. I'm not sure about Portland. It's not like the terrorism um, aren't uh, terrorists rather aren't trying. A database of all Islamist related terror plots against U.S. territory since 9-11-2001. It currently documents 109 known plots, including two this month. What's most significant is that the overwhelming number of these plots are thwarted, often by local law enforcement, before anyone gets hurt. All the recent plots against the United States lack the sophistication and scale of the 9-11 attacks. Transnational terrorist groups have been degraded to the point that they now appear to lack the capacity to pull off anything on that scale. But we can never say never. Groups like ISIS have demonstrated both resilience and innovation. And while they're most likely to be content with targeting Europe and the greater Middle East, including North Africa, for now, no one knows when they'll make um, another run at the red, white and blue, which is why America always needs to be ready. Readiness includes not just continuing vigilant counterterrorism operations here at home, but also taking the fight to ISIS and Al Qaeda overseas. They uh, can't be allowed to have sanctuaries. They can't be allowed to rebuild their infrastructure, networks and finance, uh, financing. They can't be allowed to uh, partner with transnational criminal networks and state actors, which is what uh, is believed to have happened in Sri Lanka. Americans should never get complacent about the terrorist threat, but as long as we keep heavy pressure on transnational groups, we can sleep better than most. But uh, certainly always sleep with one eye open. Well, the Supreme Court agreed on Monday to hear three cases centered on whether federal law against discrimination and employment applies to sexual orientation and gender identity. After hearing Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, the high court will decide whether the words because of uh, sex found in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 also forbid employment discrimination based on sexual orientation. The court consolidated Bostock with a similar case, Altitude Express, Inc. versus Zarda. Well, the high court also will hear arguments in R.G. 
and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission before ruling on whether Title VII, as worded, bars discrimination against transgender individuals. Well, Title VII specifically prohibits employers from discriminating on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It does not mention lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender Americans. Lower federal courts come, uh, came to conflicting decisions in Bostock, in which a child welfare worker said he was fired for being gay, and Zarda, in which a skydiving instructor uh, argued the same. Well, the Atlanta-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit decided in the Title VII doesn't prohibit discharge for homosexuality, while the New York uh, Second Circuit co- uh, ruled for the instructor, saying that discrimination based on sexual orientation is motivated, at least in part, by sex and is thus a subset of sex discrimination. In Harris Funeral Homes, a funeral director in Michigan was fired by the family-owned business after disclosing a transition from man to woman, which also involved Dressing as a woman, the Cincinnati-based Court of Appeals in the Sixth Circuit sided with the employee, concluding discrimination because of sex inherently includes discrimination against employees because of a, a change in their sex, end quote. And while many liberals see the Supreme Court as poised to restrict LGBT rights, conservatives argue that a federal law doesn't uh, go as far as activist claims. It doesn't actually use the language that would include Um, These other cases, there is a reason why for the past 25 years, activists have tried to legislatively amend federal civil rights law to include sexual orientation and gender identity. That reason is simple because it doesn't include those categories. Uh, Ryan Anderson uh, said, uh, adding that courts should not do what activists have failed to do, redefine sex to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. Doing so not only gets the law wrong, it also has serious negative consequences for women's equality safety and privacy. Well, the Christian Legal Aid Group, Alliance Defending Freedom, last fall petitioned the Supreme Court to hear the funeral home case, arguing that only Congress can rewrite a federal statute to allow a male employee who identifies as female to dress in women's clothing in violation of a company's dress code. And it was yesterday that the Supreme Court uh, announced that they are going to take that case up along with the others. Well, the Supreme Court's uh, conservative justices signaled possible support on uh, Tuesday for the president's uh, bid to ask about citizenship on the 2020 census during a high stakes argument where partisan uh, lines were quickly drawn. And while the liberal justice uh, pep- justices rather peppered the government with questions about the plan, the conservative justices were mostly silent during the arguments and assigned the conservative majority could hold in the administration's favor in a closely watched case. Now, that's all speculation. We don't know until a decision is announced. But at issue is the level of discretion Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross, who oversees the U.S. Census Bureau, has to change information uh, contained in the once-a-decade population count. Three federal courts have blocked the Commerce Department from adding the citizenship question, ruling that Ross violated federal law in the way he went about trying to include the question for the first time since 1950. Now, I say for the first time, that's not entirely accurate because it's just um, the first time since 1950, which means it's not the first time. It had been on the census for many, many years before. Uh, It's a major fight over executive power with stark implications for the fight over immigration and for national elections. If, um, for example, you determine how many House members from a particular state uh, that state is eligible for based on population, then it would be important to know if the population is legal or illegal and uh, to make those decisions based on actual citizenship, not just residents. So 
Uh, the court is uh, taking that up and, and heard the oral arguments and will probably won't hear until this summer what their final decisions will be. We're going to take a quick break. Yes, we are. The music is playing and we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Social Security, um, its reserve funds are expected to be depleted by 2035, at which time the program will be, well, will no longer be able to pay out beneficiaries' um, full entitlement. Well, that's according to the annual Social Security and Medicare a trustees report, it was released yesterday, which said total costs of the program, which covers the old age and disabilities insurance programs, will exceed income in 2020 for the first time since 1982. That's two years later than projected last year, but means the program will have to dip into its reserves to cover benefits at that time. By 2035, those uh, reserves will be depleted and 80 percent of benefits will be payable. Only 80 percent. In 2018, the trustees forecast that 100 percent of benefits would be covered through 2034, meaning the trust fund gains an extra year before expected depletion. However, the trustees will still urge lawmakers to take action sooner than later. But, of course, they have more important things to do. Both Social Security and Medicare face long-term financing shortfalls under currently scheduled benefits and financing, the trustees wrote. If you do the math, most of those members who are there now, with the exception of perhaps some of the younger ones, they'll be long gone by the time it actually happens. And then it'll be left to the next generation to come up with a solution. So, you know, what's there to worry about? Well, you know, we women, we're friends, we're sisters, we're mothers, we're grandmothers. We go through life and face many of the same things. And the truth is we can go it alone, but it's always better when we do it together and I want to remind you that uh, TBN is premiering the first program of its kind on the network, Better Together. It's their first daily original program made by women, and of course, it's for women, discussing faith and family, friends, serious issues, and lighthearted issues as well. No topic is off limits. You can find out what happens when real friends get together for real conversations, and there'll be women coming and going. They're all friends with one another, and we become friends in the process. Here in the Pacific Northwest, you can watch it on TBN at 10.30 a.m. It's their newest original series with Lori Crouch. She's going to address the many issues that concern us women with a balance of spiritual and practical commentary. She'll have interviews, a lot of fun. She'll be joined by some of her close friends, and the list is far longer than this one, but Christine Kane, Cece Winans, Victoria Olstein, Lisa Harper, Better Together was created so that women would have a place to come to ponder some of those challenging issues we face, to be reassured that, hey, I'm not alone, that just like other women here in my community and all across the country, we're facing similar issues, and that you can find um, comfort and solutions in, in God's Word and in the fellowship of other women. So don't go it alone. It's better when we're together. So check it out, 10.30 a.m., TBN's first daily original program made by women. For friends, sisters, mothers, grandmothers, for us, for women. So check that out. Join that conversation. Well, confidential files on suspected pedophiles maintained by the Boy Scouts of America contain the names of 7,800 individuals, according to an attorney for child sex abuse victims. Speaking earlier today, the organization's so-called perversion files, that's the name they've given it, have been previously disclosed through litigation, but the number of alleged abusers had not been known, according to attorney Jeff Anderson, who represents former scouts who say they were sexually abused. 
Well, Anderson said a child abuse expert hired by the Scouts revealed the staggering number during testimony in a lawsuit in January. The alarming thing about this is not just the number, but the fact is that the Boy Scouts of America has never actually released these names in any form that can be known to the public, he said at a Manhattan news conference. Well, he said the files also contain the names of more than 12,000 suspected victims, again, according to the Scouts expert. Attorney Jeff Anderson said today that Boy Scouts of America's perversion files uh, is an outrage. Files from 1959 to 1985 were made public in 2012, containing thousands of names, according to the report at the time. Anderson said those on the list may have been removed from scouting, but would not have faced consequences or prohibitions outside the scouts, precluding them from holding jobs or volunteer roles around young people. Anderson announced today that he was releasing the names of 130 of those men from New York and 50 from New Jersey who were identified in the files. In a statement um, on Tuesday, the Boy Scouts of America said, we care deeply about all victims of child abuse and sincerely apologize to anyone who was harmed during their time in scouting. Throughout our history, we have enacted strong youth protection policies to prevent future abuse, including mandatory youth protection training and a formal leader selection process that includes criminal background checks, the statement said. Since the 20s, we have maintained a volunteer screening database of, to prevent individuals accused of abuse or inappropriate conduct from joining or reentering our programs, a practice recommended in 2007 by the Centers for Disease Control for all youth-serving organizations. Well, the statement concluded by saying, at no time have we ever knowingly allowed a perpetrator to work with youth, and we mandate that all leaders, volunteers, and staff members nationwide immediately report any abuse allegation to law enforcement. Well, that is the rule apparently today, but that was not the rule in place when these names were accumulated by the Boy Scouts of America, some of which are now being made public by Attorney Anderson. Well, the trial against the al-Qaeda terrorist accused terrorist rather accused of killing 17 American sailors in the attack on the USS Cole. Sailors who have long been forgotten by most Americans, but whose families are keenly aware of what happened, when, how, and the loss that they've suffered, uh, was hit by explosives while harboring in Yemen in 2000, if you don't recall, suffered a serious setback this week. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit issued a decision in the Guantanamo Bay Military Commission's case that will complicate, if not derail, the government's effort to bring the uh, perpetrator uh, to justice. The court threw out, uh, vacated all um, orders of the military judge, Colonel Vance Spath, from November of 2015 because he should have recused himself from the case when he applied for post-retirement employment as an immigration judge. His conduct created a disqualifying appearance of partiality. The court's reasoned and thorough decision, um, if not overturned, forces the government to regroup and decide how or whether to move forward with a case that has dragged on for years. Now, how this is a disqualifying event, they say disqualifying appearance of partiality. Uh, I suppose one would have to be an attorney or a judge to fully comprehend, but the case is complex and has a long history. The first military commission case against uh, the perpetrator fell apart in 2009 for a variety of reasons. The government brought a second case against him in 2011. As uh, of March of 2017, there were 436 substantive written motions, 327 of which were argued orally. The commission had received testimony from 33 witnesses in more than 58 hours of testimony. 
The government provided over 265,930 pages of discovery to the defense. According to the government brief in this appeal, during the four years that the perpetrator presided over, or rather the judge presided over the case, he issued approximately 460 orders. Given the time that he has been on the case and the ruling from the D.C. Circuit, about half of his orders are now vacated. A member of al-Qaeda, the perpetrator is a citizen of Saudi Arabia, and one of the 14 high-value detainees brought to the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, in September of 2006 from CIA custody during the George W. Bush administration. He's held by the United States government as a law of war detainee. Well, according to the U.S. Government Military Commission's website, uh, the perpetrator Nashiri was charged in 2011 with murder, attempted murder, conspiracy and other crimes out of an attempted attack on the USS The Sullivans in January of 2000. The attacks on the USS Cole in October of 2000 and the attack on the MV Limburg in 2002, October. In total, 18 people were killed. Almost 50 were injured in those attacks. If convicted, Nashiri uh, could receive the death penalty. Getting it to a trial and those issues resolved is a whole nother matter, sadly. Doctors claim they've made medical history after a healthy baby boy was born via a controversial IVF technique that uses the genetic information from three parents, both the baby who was Born on Tuesday of last week and his unnamed 32-year-old mother are reported to be in good health, according to the Spanish and Greek doctors who oversaw the, uh, his, uh, or rather their, care. The boy was um, uh, conceived using a procedure known as maternal spindle transfer, or MST. It's a type of in vitro fertilization in which harmful mitochondrial uh, found in the mother's egg is removed and replaced by the female donor's. The procedure still allows the preservation of genetic material from the woman with the desire to reproduce, ultimately allowing 99% of the DNA to be from the parent raising the child. The long-term consequence is yet unknown. The doctors will only provide mitochondrial DNA, which only codes 37 genes and represents less than 1% of human DNA, says one of the doctors in an earlier statement. The birth carried out by the Institutes of Life in Greece marks the first time in the world the procedure ended successfully. The completely successful and safe implementation of the maternal spindle transfer method for the first time in medical history is a revolution in assisted reproduction, uh, they said in a statement. Their mother resorted to the new method after falling, or rather failing to complete four cycles of IVF and an additional two other procedures. She is one of 25 women enrolled in the Institute uh, for said procedure. Again, uh, first time successfully completed. Uh, any long-term implications are yet unknown. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Taking a look at what's happening tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Chris Howard. He's the author of Rockstar Grandparent, how you can lead the way and light the road and launch a legacy, something that most grandparents want to do. 
with their grand and great-grandchildren. On Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Kathy Branzell. She's the author of The Invitation uh, to Prayer, Peace, Love, Wisdom, Happiness, and Purpose. She's also one of the coordinators of the National Day of Prayer, which is always the first Thursday in May. So that's coming right up. So we're going to talk about prayer, uh, not only as an individual praying, but as a corporate um, effort crying out to God on behalf of our nation. So Kathy Branzell will join us on Thursday. And on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, in Kobani, Syria, there's something significant going on. I mention it because there's something significant going on in every corner of the globe, most of which we are completely unaware of. The kingdom of God is expanding. Well, a community of Syrians who converted to Christianity from Islam is growing in Kobani. It's a town that was besieged by the Islamic State for months and where the tide turned against the militants some four years ago. Well, the converts they, there rather say that the experience of war, the onslaught of a group claiming to fight for Islam, pushed them toward their new faith. After a number of families converted, the Syrian-Turkish border towns, first evangelical church opened just last year. Well, Islamic State militants uh, were beaten back by the U.S. airstrikes and the Kurdish fighters at Kobani in early 2015 in a reversal of fortune after taking over swaths of Iraq and Syria. Well, after years of fighting, U.S.-backed forces fully ended the group's control over the populated uh, territory last month. So this is fairly recently that the uh, hostilities have ended altogether. Although Islamic State's ultra-radical interpretation of Sunni Islam has been repudiated by the Islamic mainstream, the legacy of its violence has affected perceptions of faith. Many in the mostly Kurdish area of northern Syria, whose urban centers are often secular, say agnosticism has strengthened and in the case of Kobani, it's Christianity. Well, Christianity is one of the region's minority faiths that was persecuted by the Islamic State. Critics view the new converts with some suspicion, and they accuse them of seeking personal gain, such as financial help from Christian organizations who are working in the region, looking for jobs, enhancing prospects for immigration to European countries. Well, these new converts, these Muslim background believers of Kobani, deny those accusations, say, uh, saying that their conversion is a matter of faith. After the war with Islamic State, people were looking for the right path and distancing themselves from Islam. That's a quote from Omar Firas. He is the founder of Kobani's evangelical church. People were scared and felt lost. Well, Firas worked for a Christian aid group at a nearby camp for displaced people that helped set up the church. He said around 20 families, or 80 to 100 people in Kobani, now worship there. They haven't changed their names. We meet on Tuesday and hold a service on Fridays. It's open to anyone who wants to join, he says. Well, the church's current pastor, Zani Bakir, 34, arrived last year from Afrin. That's a town in northern Syria. He converted to Christianity in 2007. Well, this was painted by ISIS as a religious conflict using religious slogans because of uh, because of this, a lot of Kurds lost trust in religion generally, not just Islam, he says, the pastor of the church. Many became atheist or agnostic, but many others became Christian. Scores here and more in Afrin, he says. Well, one man who lost an arm in an explosion in Kobani and fled to Turkey for medical treatment said that he met Kurdish and Turkish converts there and eventually decided to join them. They seemed happy and all talked about love. That's when I decided to follow Jesus' teaching, Maxim Ahmed 22 said, adding that several friends and family are now interested in coming to the new church as well. Some in Kobani reject the growing Christian presence. They say Western Christian aid groups and missionaries have exploited the chaos and trauma of war to convert people and that local newcomers to the religion see an opportunity for personal gain. 
many people think that they somehow are benefiting from this, maybe for material gain or because of the perception that Christians who seek asylum abroad get preferential treatment, says a real estate worker and former Arabic teacher who is not part of the church. Thousands of Christians have fled the region over decades of sectarian strife. From Syria, they've often headed for Lebanon and European countries. President Donald Trump in 2017 banned entry from all Syrian refugees indefinitely, and he opposed a 90-day ban on travel from several other predominantly Muslim countries. You'll recall the controversy surrounding that. Well, it might be a reaction to Daesh, the Islamic State, also known as ISIS, but I don't see the positives. It just adds another religious and sectarian dimension, which in a community like this will lead to tension, says Nassan, a practicing Muslim. Nassan, like the vast majority of Muslims, reject the Islamic State's narrow and brutal interpretation of Islam. The group enslaved and killed thousands of people from all faiths, Muslims and Christians, reserving particular brutality for religious minorities, such as the Yazidis of northern Iraq. Most Christians preferred not to give their names or be interviewed, saying they fear reaction from conservative sectors of society. The population in Kobani and its surrounding area has neared its original 200,000 after people returned, although only 40,000 live in the town itself, much of which lies in ruins. But among that population of 200,000 in and around Kobani and the 40,000 who live within the town itself, there are 100 Christians. There's a church worshiping God, and these are new Muslim background uh, believers who have come to faith in Christ. Now, that's not a headline you're going to read about in the Oregonian or the New York Times or the Washington Post, but this is yet another example that God is always at work in places we would look and see impossibilities. It's not possible for people to come to faith in Christ in Syria following the horrific suffering they endured at the hands of ISIS. It's not possible for a church to emerge, the sole population of which are Muslim background believers in Jesus. And yet that's their story. It's happening in China and places in Africa and some of the most difficult places on the planet to follow Christ. The church is beginning, it's flourishing, it's growing, and people are experiencing the love of Jesus in ways uh, that they never anticipated. So remember this church in Kobani, about uh, what several families make up the church today. About 100 people are attending, and there's a lot of suspicion around what motivates them in being a part of the church. And yet these 100 new converts, these new believers are following Jesus, these 20 families Remember Kobani and also um, a a neighboring town in northern Syria uh, that is also experiencing uh, a revival, if you will, Afrin. God is at work, even in Syria. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Chris Howard. He's the author of Rockstar Grandparent. And if you want to be one, be sure to join us. How you can lead the way and light the uh, road and launch a legacy. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. Also want to remind you, 10.30 a.m. on TBN, you can enjoy the Trinity Broadcast um, program, Better Together, brand new to the lineup there, the first uh, live program of its type uh, to be seen on TBN, 10.30 a.m. All right, want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. 
Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.